My wife, Chris, is with me, and I want her to stand. And will you give her the same welcome you gave me? And right next to her is Pastor Richard Lau of Calvary Bible Church, and I think it would be appropriate to say thank you to him. If you have a Bible, I want you to open to Luke 16, please. Luke 16. And I want to say how excited it is for me to come today and look at Master's College. And it's such a beautiful day to come here. I thank God for John MacArthur. And in a very real sense, he has been kind of a pastor to me as I've traveled the last 11 years. Because every year I'm off about four Sundays a year. And apart from that, we're somewhere. But via cassette, I've had the opportunity to just enjoy so much of Dr. MacArthur's ministry. And I count him one of the... One of the great men of our day. I never planned to be an evangelist and I never planned to do what I'm doing right now. I was raised in Kansas City and went to a public school that was dominated by jocks and freaks, if you know what I mean. Jocks drank, freaks did drugs, what else is new? And at a public school of 1,500 students, when no one else would befriend me, the freaks did. And they introduced me to a little place called Across the Street, right across the street from school. Almost every school I go to has one of these little stoner's corners. And so I was like any student in this country. I wanted to have a friend, and the freaks became my friend. And to make a long story short, I became a bona fide freak. I got kicked out of five of my seven classes. Then I got kicked out of study hall, however you do that. So at the end of the year, they called my parents and they said, Jerry's incorrigible and we don't want him here anymore. And they shipped me to a new school. And the first day I was trailing the second floor hall and a tall kid named Bill stopped me and he said, do you live in Wycliffe? And I said, I sure do. And he said, I live right by you. Let's walk home from school together. And on the way home from school, he bought a few joints and he turned to me and he said, come on. And I said, yes to Bill. And drugs changed my life. Because mom and dad instantly became the old man, the old lady, shut the door, get out of my room, leave me alone. And I remember that my friend said this was the way to have fun. And the goal became how many can we turn on at school? To make a long story short, way later with Bill one night, I was at a party and got very high and got the munchies. And he came to my rescue with a whole plate of unbaked breakfast rolls and a lot of other stuff. And I ate it up real quick, jumped in the back of a four-seater car. On the way home, I leaned up and said to the driver, Man, I don't feel well. He said, Well, shut up. So I vomited all over that driver in that four-seater car. (laughs) He slammed on the brakes, opened the door, and when he got to the doorstep, slowly my parents began to wake up. We think our son is a drug user. A little late, I was hospitalized with bleeding ulcers. Shawnee Mission Hospital in Kansas City. You know who came to see me in the hospital? The straight kids, somebody wanting to help me? The Christians? No. Kids in the drug scene, they were the first there. Jerry, you've got to come back out. We've got to have fun. And I got out of the first hospital and our family doctor came to my aid. He prescribed me Valium and sleeping pills. And for 11 weeks, I lived in a downer high. You know, it's kind of strange looking back now. I think I was reaching out to my dad because when I came home from Shawnee Mission Hospital, I went up to his bathroom closet or his bedroom closet and I took his light blue bathrobe out of the closet and I wore it every day I was at home. It didn't even begin to fit me. It was totally oversized. But looking back now, 
I think it was my feeble attempt to say to my dad, look at me, I'm dying. And finally, one day, I picked up the phone and interrupted Dad's busy business day. And I said, Dad, this is Jerry. I can't talk to you or Mom. My friends are gone. I'm going to kill myself. And my father said, hold on. We'll do something. I said, there's nothing to do. I landed in St. Luke's. And when I left there on Easter Sunday, I was checked out 68 pounds of weight on a liquid diet. And I was the kind of kid that society gives up on. But when God has a plan for your life, He sees you all the way through, right? Because I came back home and some kids at one of those funny churches around the corner that believed in the Bible had been observing me. And they went to my dad and they came with a strange suggestion for me to go to a summer youth camp, Windermere Baptist Assembly in Roach, Missouri. I'm sure you've heard of it. And uh, my dad came to me. He said, Jerry, will you go down to camp? I said, I don't want to go to camp. Christians, I thought Christians are Boy Scouts or grandmas. And I said, no, thank you. But Dad went out and bought me a foosball table as a birthday gift with one stipulation that he would take it back unless I went to camp. And I didn't want to lose the foosball table. That's the only reason I went. And I sat on the back row Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. They had a morning Bible hour. That guy was about as dry as crackers. I didn't go back to him. But I couldn't get out of the evening rally. And the last night, Sherry Gibson, two rows from the front, got up out of her seat came all the way to the back and stuck her hand right in front of my face and she said, Jerry, come up and sit with me. I want you to hear the message. I said, wherever you lead, I'll follow. And she got me two rows from the front, but she was so committed to the Lord. Very serious. And she said, if you'll listen, God will change your life. And I listened to Bob Warner present the gospel that night and the power of the Holy Spirit. I recognized not just that I was lost, but that God through His Son could change me. And that night I came and I invited Christ to come into my life. I had four brothers. All of them were non-Christians. My father and mother were lost. My mother was an alcoholic, averaging about a quart of vodka a day. And I went home from that camp with a lot of challenges. And when I went home and told my mom and dad that I got saved, our first church of the deep freeze didn't use that terminology. They didn't know what I meant. I said, I'm a Christian now. I want to share Jesus. My father and mother didn't believe me at all, particularly my dad, I think because he was a businessman and a very studious thinker. And Saturday night, he knew I was going to go out and party with all my friends. And about 7 o'clock, he jumped on the couch, turned on the Lawrence Welk show. And when I jumped on the couch with my living Bible and watched Lawrence Welk for one hour, my dad knew I got saved, no doubt about it. (laughs) And the next morning, they shot out of bed, literally. Because instead of sleeping in, I was getting a suit on, going to Emmanuel. And the pastor very wisely said, Sunday morning, the kids who went to camp are going to share what God did. And we got up and gave our testimonies one by one. And I got up and I shared that I went to camp lost, a drug user, ready to die. And that Christ changed me. And that morning, my mother and father came and accepted Christ. And God can change lives. Yesterday, my mother was with us at Calvary Bible. And she has been delivered of alcoholism for four years for the power of God. Ten years ago, the Lord put a burden on my heart to go to the public school campus in North America during the daytime of our crusades. To speak, not preach. Obviously, you cannot preach. It's kind of a weird day in America. I can use profanity and be uncensored on a high school platform. But if I use the name Jesus Christ, I am censored. 
we decided to develop a talk called Life Expose, a 30-minute address on teenage drug and alcohol abuse, teen suicide. And I was told 10 years ago, you cannot get on the campus, Jerry, it's impossible. The Lord began to open doors. But as I look and see the condition of young people today, I have a question. Where are all these kids going? The number one teenage killer right now is drinking while driving. Last year, nearly 10,000 kids got a bottle, jumped in the car to go have a blast. Only one small problem. Nobody walked away to tell about it. And we have seen these students. When I was at Bonneville High in New Orleans, the largest high school in New Orleans, a couple of the juniors after the first assembly said, before Jerry speaks Friday night, let's get the car out of the junkyard. And they pulled it out, smashed, ruined, wrecked frame. Almost every foot of it had some type of indication of an incredible vehicle accident. And they put it under the sign that neatly read Bonneville High. And it was where the kids jumped in to go have a great party, got drunk, and they sailed off to a premature grave. A paramedic came up to me in Fort Lauderdale a few weeks later. He took color photographs and pushed it into my hand. He said, Jerry, don't ever stop what you're doing. These color photographs I later took home to our office staff because they're so far removed from what I do every week. I said, this is what we do. It was a boyfriend and girlfriend's Fort Lauderdale, skipped school early, sailing to Miami on the interstate, taking quaaludes and alcohol, referred to as lewds and booze on the high school campus. And I guess the young man driving failed to notice when he got stoned and smashed simultaneously because the car went over the top of the, canal, of the interstate and plunged into a deep Florida River canal. What the paramedic unit did was manage to get the vehicle out of the canal till the water drained out, and he took pictures of these kids in their final resting point. Then he shoved them in my hand, don't ever stop what you're doing. The young man that had been driving was catapulted to the back seat. His head was turned almost completely sideways. But it was his girlfriend that really bothered me. She landed in the driver's seat upside down, her head down by the accelerator pedal. Her body had managed to wrap itself around the steering wheel. Her dress had slid down her body to navel level, was barely hanging on. She had the unique adrenaline strength that in that upside-down posture, she took her leg and rammed it through the windshield. But the memory I'll never forget, her hand and her arm outstretched toward the door. I couldn't help but feel that as that river water was plunging in, she was hoping there'd be somebody else there to pull her out. The odd thing was these two kids are in eternity. Where are they now? The number two teenage killer is suicide. In 1950, the fifth cause of teenage death was suicide. In 1980, it became the second greatest teenage killer. Now the National Center for Health Statistics tells us every 90 seconds, a teenager reaches for a gun, a rope, a razor, or the ignition of an automobile to extinguish what is always a hurt-filled life. And then every 80 minutes, a teenager completes suicide. Not succeeds, that's a misnomer, they complete suicide. And so we got Tanya's letter the other day from Cincinnati. Her boyfriend Todd, a stoner, got loaded one night, took a shotgun, rigged it up in a tree, dead-stared the barrels, and the gun went off in an attempt to blow his head off at neckline. Todd blew his face off and not his head. Unlike all the other letters we've gotten, this was a unique letter. Jerry, Todd has two teeth left. He has no nose. The center of his face is gone. His mandible bone has been removed from his body. We go to ICU now, intensive care, and we ask Todd, Hey, Todd, do you want to live? He shakes his head yes. Todd is struggling, almost dead. Where are all these students now? 
6,000 that died last year. Luke 16, verse 19. There was a certain rich man, and he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, gaily living in splendor every day. A certain poor man named Lazarus was laid at his gate covered with sores, and longing to be fed with the crumbs were falling from the rich man's table. Besides, even the dogs were coming licking his sores. Now it came about that the poor man died, and he was carried away by the angel into Abraham's bosom, a Jewish expression for paradise. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades he lift up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool off my tongue, for I am in agony in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that during your life you received your good things, and likewise Lazarus bad things. But now he is being comforted, and you are in agony. Verse 26, And besides all this, between us and you, there's a great chasm fixed, in order that those who wish to come over from here to you may not be able, and that none may cross over from there to us. Notice his cry in verse 27. And he said, Then I beg you, then I beg you, then I beg you, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. Knock on the door. Go tell my family about Jesus. Why? Verse 28. For I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come, and then he names it, to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. He said, No, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Verse 31. But he said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. Father, I pray this morning you would give us a burden for lost people. I pray that you would give us an awareness of how many people are entering the regions of eternity unprepared every day. And I pray that we might care as the Savior cared. I pray that we might weep as He weeped. And I pray that we might leave this place different today. I pray at Master's College you would raise up a generation of young men and women that would have a vision to take the gospel to our society and to our nation and to the world that is searching high and low and in between for something satisfying. God, open our eyes today. Do something special. We'll give you the honor and you the glory. In Jesus' name and for His sake, amen. As a Youth for Christ evangelist and a young man almost in, high, or in college, I was invited to come to Freeport, Illinois to speak to 600 kids in a downtown youth rally. We got to the city of Freeport and had dinner with Harry Stoltz and his wife. Then Harry and I got in their car and we headed to the auditorium. We pulled out of one residential area, went into another on the way to the little interstate that took us downtown. And on the way through the residential area, he turned and pointed to a home. And he very simply said, Jerry, do you see that home? I said, yes. He said, well, take a good look at the front lawn. And he said, I'll tell you about it after the rally. I looked at what was a typical house. We got to the rally, 600 kids, had a Youth for Christ rally, gave the invitation, and a lot of young people that night made their decision. On the way back to his house, I was staying with him. We went past the same home. Do you see that home? Take a good look at it. He said, we had something odd take place last week. 
A young man, about 14, was filling up a Coleman lantern with fluid. He apparently got part of the lantern filled up, ran out of fluid, and went down into the basement to get more fluid to finish filling up the Coleman lantern. They don't really know exactly all of it, but they think that on the way down the basement stairs, he must have tripped and he ran straight into the hot water heater. And apparently some of the fluid spilled on his clothing when he was filling up the lantern out on the front lawn. The pilot light traced the aroma to his clothing and ignited him like a torch. The next thing everybody knew was he jetted through the garage onto the front lawn and he was screaming and hollering and a neighbor across the street saw him and instead of ignoring his screams, ran across the street, tackled the man, and or tackled the young man, and rolled him in the grass and doused the flames, saved his life. Said, you know what's so odd? They are now considering bringing a psychiatrist into this residential area. Because when this young man jetted through the garage on fire, there were little children out playing in this residential district, and they were so overcome by the screams that came out of this teenager's mouth that they froze in their tracks, horrified watching him on fire, and little children have gone to bed now, and in the middle of the night, they are subconsciously recalling these screams, having incredible nightmares. They are considering bringing a psychiatrist in because they want to counsel with the children and attempt to eliminate the screams from their mind of the young man when he was on fire. Is there a hell? Is there really a hell? I mean, college student, is there a place that the Bible says is a place of torment and anguish? A place that's beyond our comprehension? Or is hell, as we often read today, the religion editors all over America, that hell is right here on this earth? USA Today Weekend Magazine recently polled 604 adults in the United States and they asked several questions. They asked, number one, how many of you believe in heaven? Eighty percent said there's got to be a heaven. And then they asked, how many of you believe in hell? And 64% of adults in America said there's got to be a hell. But only 56% of college graduates believe in hell in 1990, compared to 71% of high school graduates who say there's a hell. But a quarter percent say there's no hell. But belief in God is nearly universal. 96% said there's got to be a God. And I watched today and I listened to our, all of the commentators and everybody today talks about God and talks about heaven and God understands. Magic Johnson on Arsenio Hall Friday night, along with Arsenio, of course, the son of a Baptist pastor, said God has a way, God has a plan. But is there a hell? And if there is a hell, why don't we really talk about it anymore? How come we seldom really mention it? I speak in a lot of youth conventions, and I learned a long time ago, if you're going to be a Vogue youth convention speaker, you don't speak on hell. It's just not popular to come to a youth camp and talk about hell, or go to a big youth convocation and mention the reality of hell to people. A campus minister the other day at a university not far from here was asked, what do you think about hell? And the campus minister said he interprets the biblical concept of hell to mean separation from God, separation from the ground of authentic being and existence. It means the state of being left to our own creatureliness, to be imprisoned in our natural state, the state of being alone and isolated 
It is not confined to a place or time or punishment after death. It is experienced every day. And that's the typical line today. That there is no real burning hell. A place that we would think like Jesus said or like Spurgeon said that if we really understood the doctrine of hell, we would lose our mental sanity. The notion that a mortal might actually visit hell and return to tell about it has been the source of fascination of people of almost every age. And since ancient times, the abode of the wicked has been viewed through many different spectrums and many religions. For instance, the most popular is the best-known journey to hell is, of course, Dante's. His travels among the damned are recorded in the Inferno. It is the first part in a three-part divine comedy, an account of his imaginary journeys through hell. Dante conducted through hell, and he talked about it. And you know, there were people alive in Dante's day that believed that he actually had been to hell. And what he talked about hell was kind of amazing. The entrance over hell had a sign. Abandon every hope, you who enter here. And then Dante, in his imagination, witnesses the eternal torment. He talks about souls that suffer punishment according to their appropriate sins. Hypocrites, for example, in his hell, wear brilliantly outward but heavy lead robes, and they're forced to wear them throughout eternity. And those that are given to the moral sins are in a region of hell that is beyond the description, a place of screaming and agony, a place beyond man's ability to comprehend. Now, John Calvin said in Luke 16 that all of the words that we read about hell were only metaphors of something far worse. But all around us, people are dying. And it was Morris Rawlings, the Chattanooga doctor, that said he didn't even become a Christian until one of his patients started to die. And the doctor, or the patient screamed out, Dr. Rawlings, I'm going to hell. And when the patient screamed it out, they said that Rawlings really didn't say much except that they stabilized the man. And then later, he reverberated on the thought in his mind and someone told him that a doctor named Luke wrote a commentary about Jesus and about hell and he read the Gospel of Luke and Morris Rawlings in Chattanooga gave his heart to Christ, a medical doctor. And then later he wrote through death's door. And it's the story about many people that died. Now, of all the New Testament writers, Jesus gives us more information about hell than any other. And it's interesting, but the little word hell appears 24 times in the New Testament. And of course, Jesus used the word Hades, and then he used the term Gehenna. When someone dies without God, according to Christ, they go to Hades. And in Hades, everybody suffers alike. But then Jesus used the term, the hair-raising term, Gehenna. And he gave the somber warning in Mark 9, If your hand offends you, cut it off and cast it from you. It's better for you to lose your hand, pluck out your eye, lose your foot, than for you to die without a hand or, or with two hands or two eyes or two feet and to go into hell. Why? It is the place where the worm dies not and the fire is not quenched. Go to the local Christian bookstore and ask for a book on hell. The Christian Booksellers Convention has not printed a book on hell in several years. And when asked why the other day, they said a book like that will not sell. It's not popular. Nobody wants to rush to the bookstore and pick up a copy. And yet how different it is in this century than it was four centuries ago. John Bunyan wrote a book entitled Sighs from Hell, A Groans of a Damned Soul. 
in the 1600s. His book, Groans, from a, or Groans of a Damned Soul, went into 20 different editions. And they said that he put the fear of God into the hearts of the people in the 1600s that men and women literally feared a place called hell. And as many of us know, Jonathan Edwards spent three days in a prayer closet in prayer and fasting in a New England colony. He left the prayer closet after three days of fasting and prayer and he got into a New England colony pulpit and he did not preach. He read a sermon entitled Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Of course, Edwards could not see well and so he held his notes very similar to maybe three or four inches in front of his face and he read the sermon verbatim. This one sermon required four intermissions. In the sermon, Edwards tries to get his listeners to imagine that they are in a furnace where the heat is much greater than that experienced by accidentally touching a hot coal. And then he tries to get his listeners to imagine being in a furnace one minute, one hour, one hundred years, and yet to be no more nearer to the end. Richard Baxter, the English theologian and pastor, said, quote, "...the everlasting flames of hell will not be thought too hot for the rebellious." And when they have there burned through the millions of ages, he will not repent of the evil which has befallen them. And John Charles Riley, the Bishop of Liverpool, said, quote, Let others hold their peace about hell if they will. I dare not do so. I see it plainly in Scripture, and I must speak of it. What would you say of a man who saw his neighbor's house in danger of being burned down and never raised the cry, Fire? And then Charles Haddon Spurgeon. They said that he preached to the greatest celebrities of his day. Even Queen Victoria came to hear him minister in his London pulpit. Did it compromise Spurgeon when it came to hell? Not at all. At Hackney, at an outdoor meeting with 10,000 in attendance, Spurgeon said, quote, It is labor in the fire, but no ease, no peace, everlasting storm, unceasing tempest. I heard of a minister who once said to his congregation, if you do not love the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be sent to that place which is not polite to mention. Spurgeon said he ought not been allowed to preach again, I'm sure, if he could not use plain words. And then he launched into his sermon, Heaven and Hell. During his point on hell, he said, quote, The angel binding you hand and feet holds you one single moment over the mouth of the chasm. He bids you to look down, down, down. There is no bottom. And you hear coming up from the abyss sullen moans and hollow groans and screams of tortured ghosts. They are forever, forever, forever lost on every chain in hell that reads the words forever. Why has things changed in 1991? We don't really talk about hell, but Jesus said there is a hell. Look at Luke 16. He says there's a place of unending life. This rich man, according to Jesus in verse 22, died. But he had a head he could lift. He had eyes he could see. He had a tongue in the throat that could become parched. He cried out and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I am tormented in this flame. Every conscious sensation of human life, this man has an eternal hell. Matthew 13:42. He shall bind them hand and feet and cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 8, verse 12. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 22, verse 13. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 25, verse 30. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. 
This is not one gospel quoting another gospel. This is Jesus in the book of Matthew alone saying that when a man goes to hell, there is weeping, there is wailing, and there is gnashing of teeth. One paramedic the other day said that when a man is taken in an automobile accident, semi-conscious, it is not uncommon in intense physical pain that a person will either, as we know, swallow their tongue, and as many of us don't know, in intense pain, many people have been known to shred their tongue with their teeth. Jesus said that when a man goes to hell, they'll be weeping, and there'll be gnashing of teeth. It's a place of unending life. And then notice the Savior said it's a place of untold suffering. This man died and he was buried, and according to Christ, he cried, C-R-I-E-D. The rich man cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And four times it's here, the word torment, this place of torment. In other words, he is in a place of agony. What kind of agony is it, Jerry? I don't know. Matthew 3:12, he will burn the chaff with unquenchable fire. Isaiah 33:14, who among us shall dwell in everlasting burnings? Hebrews 6:8, whose end is to be burned? Revelation 14:11, the smoke of their torment ascendeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. And the Savior talks about the degrees of punishment. In hell, in Matthew 11:23, I say unto you, Capernaum, it'll be more tolerable, sufferable, and durable for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you, or for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you in the day of judgment. Why? Because of all of your re- rejection of Christ. In other words, Capernaum, the headquarters of Christ, rejected the light of God, and the warning of Jesus Christ was that Sodom and Gomorrah would not suffer in hell as much as you will suffer because you have rejected light, a place of untold suffering. Henry Smith was a Puritan who was known as the silver-tongued preacher, and his sermons passed through 17 editions. With the torment of hell, Mr. Smith said, quote, all of the fires of hell leap upon his heart like a stage that calleth to fear, and fear, fear whistles to whore, and whore becomes to despair, and saith, Come, help me torment this sinner. The untold suffering. The other day I was in Arkansas, and they asked me to go pray over a boy right before we had a rally. And we'd been in all the high schools that week, and there were about 4,000 students that came to the closing meeting. This young man's name was Kevin Postoke. He was a little teenage Satanist that was convinced that if he would commit suicide, he could reign with the devil in hell. And I've seen a number of would-be suicides, but I had never seen anything like Kevin Postoke because he took a little gun and stuck it in his mouth and he pulled the trigger and a bullet went straight through the top of his roof, straight through the top of his head and drilled in the ceiling above him. They wanted me to pray for him. And I walked into his hospital room, and I want to tell you, as I looked at him, I had never seen quite like it. His head was shaved. He had an incision from one ear to the other, from the back straight to the front. And he was semi-conscious. And someone challenged me with that, but he was. And I laid my hand down, and I prayed, and I looked at him knowing that he was lost. And his father and mother were right behind me. And when I got done having a prayer, the first thing they said to me was, they said, you know, we just don't know about Kevin. And if he dies, what's going to happen? 
And of course, I didn't say a word, but I thought, oh God, what if this young man dies and enters eternity? Where is he going to go? The rich man not only has a place of unending life and untold suffering, but an urgent emergency is issued. In verse 27, go to my father's house. Tell him about Jesus, lest they also come to this place of torment. And I want to ask you this morning, do you have a burden for souls? Do you have a burden for those who don't know Christ? Statisticians tell us that every time the second hand makes a move on the clock, one soul is passing into the regions of eternity. Of the 51 million people that die every year, one missionologist has suggested that maybe 5% of them know Christ. Someone got liberal and said maybe 10%. But the fact is, every week and every day, there are people entering the regions of eternity totally unprepared. And do we really have a burden? They said John Wesley's burden was so great that he traveled 250,000 miles on a horseback. He averaged 20 miles a day for 40 years. He preached 40,000 sermons. He produced 400 books. He knew 10 languages. And at the age of 83, he was ashamed that he couldn't preach more than twice a day. When John got to be 83, he also wrote in his diary how ashamed he was that he couldn't write more than 15 hours a day without hurting his eyes. At the age of 86, John Wesley was ashamed that he would lie in bed until 5.30 in the morning. And when asked about his burden, he said, If I had a hundred men who feared only God and hated only sin, I could set the world on fire. Do you and I have a burden like that? Not long ago on the movie page here in L.A. was the latest thriller of Nightmare on Elm Street, Freddy Krueger. Freddy, of course, is supposed to be dead as of this last movie. The creator of Freddy Krueger is a Bible college graduate by the name of Wes Cravens, now 50. They asked Wes Cravens, what do you think about Nightmare on Elm Street, all of the seven series, the seven flicks? These movies have now brought in a half a billion dollars, 500 million I believe we're at a fairly frightening transitional stage in history. We tried the Ozzy and Harry thing in the 50s, and that didn't work. Then we tried the hippie peace love thing, and that didn't work. Then we tried the yuppie thing, and things got worse. So what's next? Today, there is no clear way for teenagers to go. All they hear are politicians, TV preachers, and cynical heavy metal musicians telling them things they censor lies. No one is offering them the truth they crave so deeply. How lost are young people? Guns N' Roses just released their album. Axl Rose, who attended Assembly of God Church as a young teenage boy and later turned from Christianity, is the lead singer of Guns N' Roses. He has admitted to everyone that he spends nearly 20 hours a week in counseling because, in his words, he is emotionally deranged. But Axl Rose is the icon of the young. The new album they've just released has sold now four million copies. Every 78 seconds or every 90 seconds, a teenager attempts suicide. Every 80 minutes, a teenager completes suicide. Every 80 minutes, a teenager is murdered. Every 20 minutes, a teenager becomes pregnant. And every two minutes, a teenager will give birth. And the Children's Defense Fund in Washington, D.C. was asked just the other day, How bad is it? They monitor youth. They monitor children. They said, well, in 24 hours, 2,989 children see their parents get a divorce. Every 24 hours, 2,556 children are born out of wedlock. Every 24 hours, 1,629 children are in adult jails. 
1,512 teens per day drop out of school. 437 teens are arrested for drunken driving. 2,795 teenagers every 24 hours become sexually active. And 623 teenagers contract syphilis or gonorrhea. We're doing a video right now on AIDS and teens, and I'll tell you it is so shocking. And I read the other day about Michael Stone, who died at Law High School just the other day, the first teenager to have on his death certificate under the abbreviation of cause of death, A-I-D-S. A high school kid. Do you have a burden this morning? Do you have a burden for souls? I want to close on this note this morning. If there's any biography that I think has stimulated me spiritually more than other, it has to be J. Hudson Taylor, God's Men in China. Written by Dr. and Mrs. Howard Taylor. I've read it and reread it. It's, it's, I think, one of the greatest books ever written. You know, J. Hudson Taylor was a man that before he went to the China as a missionary, he said, move man through God by prayer. You might recall, if you've read it, he moved to the section of London where nobody really wanted to go, Drainside. And he said, how can I go to China and be used of God if I don't know that God will meet my needs? There in Drainside, he worked for a doctor as a medical assistant. His doctor was very absent-minded and always forgot when his salary was due. Mr. Taylor always paid his rent on time, the few little bills he had. He had such a deep conviction about debt. But he felt that it wouldn't please God for him ever to remind the doctor that his salary was due. In a very small way, he shared in his diaries how God would remind his doctor through a variety of ways. He moved man through God by prayer, and then he went to China. And he noticed when he got to China that all the missionaries basically were in the coastal areas. These European missionaries trying to reach Chinese people. Hudson Taylor did something at the time a century ago that was one of the most monumentous moves of missions in the nation of China. He walked out of his bungalow missionary shack one morning and shocked all the other missionaries. What he did so provoked them that they called it compromise. They said he would never be used of God and some of them immediately ran off to their little place of writing and they wrote the London Evangelization Society and asked that Mr. Taylor immediately be ejected as a missionary. You remember what he did? He dyed his hair black. He put on Chinese clothes. He walked out of that shack and he said, you will never reach a Chinese person until you become Chinese. And the missionaries continued to stay in the coastal area. God gave him a vision for China's interior. If you study it closely, before his work in China ever got off the launching pad, one of his children died, another child died, then his wife died. He was left in China's interior alone. The remaining family was put on a boat, shipped back to London, and he was left in China alone. His burden was so great that when he went back to Scotland, they had big Bible conferences in Scotland that weren't used to tremendous fervor, they decided to have the missionary come and speak at the largest one in Glasgow. And he stood up to speak and he said, quote, don't pray and see if you're called to go to China. Pray and see if you're called to stay home. A million per month are dying without God in China, read from Taylor's lips. This was burned into my very soul. For two or three months, the conflict was intense. 
I scarcely slept more than day and night, more than an hour at a time. And I feared that I should lose my reason. Yet I did not give in. To no one could I speak to, not even to my wife. She doubtless saw that something was going on. But I felt I must refrain as long as possible from laying upon her a burden so crushing. These souls and what eternity must mean for every one of them and what the gospel might do, would do, for all who would believe if we would take it to them. And when his little daughter Gracie died at 35 years of age, J. Hudson Taylor, after they buried her, wrote in his journal, Our dear little Gracie, how we miss her sweet voice in the morning. One of the first sounds to greet us when we awoke and throughout the day and at eventide is I take the walks I used to take with her tripping little finger at my side. The thought comes anew like a throb of agony. Is it possible I shall never more feel the pressure of that hand, never more see the sparkle of those eyes? And yet she is not lost. I would not have her back again. I am thankful she was taken rather than any of the others, though she was the sunshine of our lives. Pray for me. At times, the trials of our work seem almost greater to bear, but He has said, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And when his wife died at 38 years of age, alone in 1870, in China's interior in a tumultuous nation, quote, from my inmost soul I delight in the knowledge that God does or permits all things for good to those who love Him. He and only He knew what my dear wife was to me. He knew that the light of my eyes and the joy of my heart was in her. On the last day of her life, we had no idea that it'd be the last. Our hearts were mutually delighted by the never-old story of each other's love. And almost her last act was, with arm around my neck, to lay her hand on my head and to pray a blessing on me, I believe, because her lips had lost their cunning. When I look at young people today, 24 million in the United States, and I see how lost they are, and I think about a real hell, it says to me, Oh God, give me a burden. What about you? Let's bow our heads together and pray.